Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Topo Designs. Topo makes incredibly strong and durable bags that I use to protect and carry my podcast equipment to studios and galleries each week. Based in Denver, Colorado, Topo is committed to creating quality bags and clothing that stand the test of time. Check out their products at topodesigns.com. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Kensington Stretchers and Panels. Kensington makes custom panels and stretchers that are high-quality and durable supports for making artwork. It's a small, artist-run business that delivers to New York City and beyond. I've been using their panels for my new paintings, and they work perfectly. Check them out at kensingtonpanels.com or email them at info at kensingtonpanels.com. And you can also see some of their work on Instagram at kensingtonpanels. Sound and Vision is also brought to you by Charter Coffee House. Charter is on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg, just one block from the Graham L stop. They serve great coffee, pastries, donuts, and more. Not only do I enjoy their fresh-brewed coffee at the store, I also get my beans for home from Charter. They carry and brew Middle State Coffee, a great roaster out of Denver, and they're currently working with them on a custom blend made specifically for Charter. Find out more at www.chartercoffee.com and follow them on Instagram at charter underscore bk. Sarah Kane is an artist who lives and works in Los Angeles. Sarah received a BFA in 2001 from the San Francisco Art Institute in San Francisco, California, and then received an MFA in the 2006 from the University of California at Berkeley. That same year, she attended Skowhegan. Sarah is the recipient of the 2011 Paula Krasner Foundation Grant, the 2008 Durfee Grant, the 2007 Paula Krasner Foundation Grant, and the 2006 Sika Art Award from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Sarah has had solo exhibitions at Adobe Books in San Francisco, Anthony Meyer Fine Arts in San Francisco, a site-specific installation at Elk Camp in collaboration with the Aspen Art Museum, Cardi Black Box in Milan, Control Gallery in Houston, Texas, 533 Gallery in LA, Gallery Lalong in New York, Honor Fraser in Los Angeles, and the Institute of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, amongst many more. Recent group exhibitions include Holdings at the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego, Contemporary Collection at the San Antonio Museum of Art in Texas, Surrogates at Griffin Art Projects in Vancouver, Variations, Conversations in and Around Abstract Painting at LACMA, Nowism Abstraction Today at the Pizzuti Collection in Columbus, Ohio, and Drawings and Work on Paper at Gallery Lalong, and many more. Selected public collections include the Blanton Museum of Art, SF MoMA, the Flag Art Foundation, the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego, the North Carolina Museum of Art, and the Margulies Collection in Miami, just to name a few. I met up with Sarah at LaLong Gallery in Chelsea to talk about her early days in Kinderhook, mentors in music, moving out west, and her many accomplishments. Here's our conversation. Right. It's like, who's that talking? Yeah. <laughs> but so it's, it's a whirlwind trip? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a lot. It's a lot of different things. Personal, family, art, upstate, city. But Well, you grew up upstate. Did you grow up upstate? Yeah, I grew up in Kinderhook, New York. Um, oh, that's, um, 
I went to the schoolhouse. I went to third grade there. My mom taught there. And well, that's where Jack Shaman has yeah. his space now. Yeah, in it's I've wild. never been there. Is oh, it? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really incredible. Wait, that's not the school you went to. Was it is. It? Really? Yeah. My bus stop. There's like this weird. It's not a gravestone, but it looks like a gravestone right outside, and that's where I had to stand and wait for the bus every day. <laughs> so like every morning, I would be in that yard. Oh, did it have an effect? <laughs> Well, it was very strange, like the smell. I can still remember, like when I was in the staircase there. It's like, oh, this is that smell from. Yeah. And I had some memories from it, but. Yeah, I mean, it's so different now. It's it kind of I'm a little getting a little better. Like I saw some friends, which I saw one friend, and an older friend that helped. Um, but this painter that I lived with, in East Nassau age 15 to 26 I would spend summers with her and she mm-hmm. was um she just passed away this week so I also went to see her husband he's 95 she was 90 mm-hmm. so that was a lot and weirdly last week I googled her name and obituary I just had this strange feeling and then I was so relieved that she was still alive and I saw she had a new website and then my mom called me like the day before I was coming and said she had just read an obituary that's weird it was weird yeah you just had a feeling yeah, and man, and she like really taught me. It was the first studio I ever saw. She was a really great painter. She went to Bard. Yeah, I learned like I had no idea what being an artist was until another older mentor took me at 15 and showed me an open studio. So it was kind of wild. And then I went back to the she also her and her husband converted an 8,000 square foot studio and it's just magnificent and they were there the whole time I was during that age and then they relocated to Germantown, but I, um, another painter, Alan Cote and Lydia Davis, the writer, bought it from them, so mm-hmm. like I was going to have, I had dinner with poets, Bernadette Mayer and Philip Good that lived near there, where I used to spend a lot of time, anyway, rambling, but I then I had to like go and tell Alan that Martha passed. It was like a really intense, weird three days up there. Had you been in contact with them yeah. over the years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were like family as much as... But the last time I spoke to her, I could tell that things were a little off. Um, but then I guess this last year, she had been in, in, in and out of a nursing home, which I wish I knew, yeah. but I, I didn't know. But you said but she was 90? She was 90, and he's... St- now Don's living alone, and he's 95. It's oh, like, he goes brutal. to the gym three times a week. It's amazing. He's nice. writing a new book. It's just like... Energy? Oh my God, it's so inspiring and daunting. Like, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm like almost half that age, and I feel like it sounds like he has more energy than I. Yeah, gym, the gym three times a week is my goal. Yeah. If I get there too, I feel really good about that. That's myself. a good look at 90 if yeah. you're hitting the gym three times a week. <laughs> yes. I feel like, though, a lot of times when people of that age, like, they have to just keep it moving. You know? Yeah, that's what he said. You have to keep your body and your mind, or that's it. Yeah. Well, that's anyway. sad, though, that he lost her. Yeah, it's really sad. It's like, a real, yeah, so that, but then I went up to the Tang. I saw Ian Barry, which was nice, and the Donna Nelson show, and mm-hmm. um, there's a great, he got uh, Stephen Lieber's ephemera collection. I knew Stephen a little from San Francisco, and it's ephemera from the 60s, so a student curated a section from that, and my friend Kamal Amupatan has work up there, so that was nice. And then I saw, I went to see Stephen Westfall, I didn't know he lived right down the street from Martha and Don. So when I visited Don, I saw Stephen. And that was a nice, like, to go from, like, real sadness into a friend. It was really helpful. He's a great writer, too. Yeah, and he had never met my boyfriend. So to see them, like, 
all, at one point I was like, oh my God, they're so alike. They just like clicked into this conversation and it took off. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was nice. So becoming sort of artistic, did that come out of like having mentors and not so much in school or were you doing it in no, sort I of was grade doing school? It. school? I was really like, I always won the prizes and stuff, but like, you know, I was drawing like cats and then I moved into copying Led Zeppelin covers and stuff sure. like that. That's but, the curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I but won an award too. You know, I, I talked to so many people on the podcast who have gotten those either in high school or junior high school, that award, like the best Mine was at county piece. fairs. But I think there's something to that. Like yeah, there the, is. It may, And it also makes your family think you're good at something. Right, right. So they start, because sadly, people who don't make art, like it's the awards or the money that validates you to right. them. Um, but yeah, I was always artistic. And then, but then, you know, like real art, like the first time I saw Martha really loved Terry Winters. So I remember picking up a catalog and being like, what? Wow. You know, or, <laughs> what time um, was that? Like what era? 15. Um, yeah. I, I'm born in 79. So the nineties. Right. Um, that's when he was in fifth gear. He was doing those like blobby yeah. pod things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or she like, you know, Bryce Martin and it just like turned me on to things really early so I did I had a few people like that I also when I was 16 lived with a woman who was in grad school at Albany so you know I like I sort of got the grad school curriculum handed to me yeah. at 15 16 which was by osmosis yeah or she would just say you have to get these books and oh like, yeah wow okay because I left home it I dropped out of high school in 10th grade and left home and then have been on my own and those people have sort of stood in as I mean, I, I have parents and I like them, but I'm so different from everybody that, you know, that's artists find, make their own families. Right. Yeah, but it sounded like you had like an AP art education in a way. I did. And then like Bernadette Mayer is an incredible poet and she was good friends with my friend Bill Berkson, also a great writer and poet who also passed away last year. And like Bernadette was down the street and Bill was my teacher at the San Francisco Art Institute. So... I'd come, I'd have him during the year and then come back and live in the schoolhouse and have Bernadette, like, it, how, it's just so lucky. It's and, full immersion. Yeah, and with, like, really radical, cool people. I don't think that's common. No, I feel really <laughs> lucky. <laughs> it was life-saving, for sure, because yeah. I was, like, a depressed, angry teen. And I still, like, when I go back, I just have the worst nightmares. It's so creepy up there to me. It's, a, it's kind of like a... I don't know, like it brings out like a certain feeling of of like nostalgia of a certain time in your childhood when you... A little. We're all uncomfortable at that time to some extent, I think. It's actually good, right? Because the people who are really comfortable at that time, I feel like they, yeah, they always want to go back to being... Yeah. Man, I was so cool in high school. (laughs) I know. I I feel like sadly those people pass away early. Like the guy, I didn't know he was a painter, but the heartthrob of my school a year older than me he just died and the last time I saw him I remember him saying I can't believe you get to paint all day and, and he, he was a painter yeah I didn't know that his obituary said that but I was like oh no wonder and he was an Aquarius like me I was like oh no wonder why <laughs> <laughs> but I think some like early it's the same in art world with career like too much early success can really stunt you yeah. you know yeah you got to you know, go through years and years of... <laughs> and be okay with rejection. Right. 
Because if you're not, fuck it. <laughs> it's or not, maybe not even okay, just experience it. Yeah. Because if you have green lights, that's why, not to, as a parent, yeah. I feel like nowadays, you know, they call us not helicopter parents, but curling parents, because we just sweep the ice in front of the kids so they have this smooth sailing oh, existence. What do through. they call you? Curling parents. Curling? You know, the Olympics were, where oh, they're on yeah. ice and they kind of like oh, clean wow. the ice off so you can smooth, the rock can smoothly mm. glide through. Which is perfect because we yeah. just do that. We try to make everything super easy. Oh, wow. But when you don't have to fight through anything and everything's just gifted to you, yeah, you become you expect everything, and you know you yeah. kind of have to go through some struggle. I agree. Right, but <laughs> yeah. it's just not people don't you know with the levels of anxiety of people these days. It's like yeah. you try to avoid it at all costs. But I think it builds character and experience. And yeah, it also though like sometimes I I feel like there's some sort of like uh, lack of defeatment in people that have had the ice cleared that I'm envious of because it does give them an optimistic like I can do anything but also has an entitlement to it that's a little it can but I've I've seen it also create like everything sucks like nothing's great like if you if everything's always easy or great then, you know, like the kid who always goes on the great vacations and always has the yeah. toys they want, they never feel excited or satisfied by anything because there's, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, know, I don't, I'm I don't not know saying too that. Many of that. <laughs> this is mostly imaginary. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> well, when you were, did you go to San Francisco because you're like, okay, I'm getting the hell out of here? Like, I want to get. I went to France. I like. I went to I went to public high school upstate, and I remember one day I was like, "This is it, I'm leaving." And then over the loudspeaker, they said, "Anyone interested in being a foreign exchange student, come to the office." And I just like ran. I was like, "I'll go to London," because <laughs> <laughs> I had just dropped French class to take more art classes, mm. and that was a big like I had to convince them to let me do that. Um, you wanted to stick to English. Yeah, <laughs> but they were like, "No, you have to go to France." So I ended up going even to a smaller town than where I was from. Oh. And I didn't, I didn't speak any French. Um, but that must have been. It was brutal. Culture shock. It was just so isolating. And but that's when I really, I mean, I already was drawing a lot, but that's when I was like, okay, I'm just gonna draw nonstop. Yeah. Um, and then like from there, I went to a little school and I transferred into a little college in Albany, New York. And then they had a scholarship. And they sent one person to Parsons in Paris, and then I went back to Paris. And then that's. I'm like 17 at that point, and then I applied to San Francisco Art Institute. And then from then on, I lived in San Francisco for a decade, and now I've been in L.A. for a decade. So you've, I mean, you moved around a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. It's weird, though, because it was before cell phones or Internet. Like, it's such a different, I can't even imagine. Must feel not so isolating. Well, maybe, I don't know. It was a different sense. Like, time was so different. It's sort of like the difference of time between upstate and the city where things are longer and you have to, like, face things. It's so real, too, that shift. Like, as soon as I get, like, my wife's family lives outside the city in a nice area of land. It's quiet. and, And things really slow down instantly when you get out there. That's wild. And as soon as we cross the GW to come back, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like the anxiety, like the, uh, the you know. The construction starts. The speed of everything and I don't know. There's good and bad with both, I guess. Yeah. Are those it's, days when you have both in the same day trip me out so much? Yeah. That was our yesterday. It's like. It's like going wow. from first to fifth gear instantly? Yeah. That's not good for the transmission. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
or the transition. Did yeah. you did you love San Francisco? I mean, was it a great oh, atmosphere? And not really. I mean, I don't know. I just had to do this show at CCA with their grad students that relooks at that era of me and my friends. It was. 2000, 2008. I left in 2006 or seven. I got there in 97. And it was brutal. Like, I just didn't want to think about it. It was such a hard time for me. But I think it's because I was really depressed and it was I was struggling. Like, maybe I could have been anywhere and I would have felt like that. But also, there's, like, um, the bubble to SF. And it's so regional that, I don't know, my life really improved as soon as I left. Yeah. And I'd, like started to experience happiness that I haven't felt since I was like 10. (laughs) What was your work like in school? What were you doing? Uh, Well, undergrad, I was doing a lot of work about synesthesia and like translating letters into abstract paintings and also doing a lot of, so then, and then in between I started making works on site in abandoned buildings and they were minimal abstract paintings directly on the wall and floor, sometimes with objects that were in the buildings. And then I went to UC Berkeley for grad and I was mostly doing works on site and works on paper and some paintings, but I wouldn't show any of my paintings to the faculty. I really kept it my own thing, um, which was good. It you were just showing the this on-site stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't want the voices in there because painting, you know, like I was, I was really against anything commercial or object-based. So to allow myself to make a canvas, and even then I was using those hilarious... Um, craft store disposable canvases and that was like allowing me to paint um yeah but then that's when I transitioned like I I got a great gallery and I got that Sika award at SFMOMA like all coming out of grad school so it was I wasn't really in that crazy wave because I was in San Francisco but I was on like the tail end of where you could go to grad school into a career yeah which when I sometimes I I don't teach teach but when I do studio visits and stuff it's like those days are so gone. Oh yeah, yeah. That and, ship and the is tuition <laughs> is so much higher. <laughs> yes, it's a different climate. It's crazy. And I, I don't know why we, people would do it. Yeah, I, well, I think we, as you know, going through your, the buildup of whatever you did in your career, like where you entered the road yeah. of art at a certain time, you, when you're talking to other students, you tend to come from a certain place, a certain angle. Right. And, like, when I emerged into the art world, it was, like, you know, late 90s. It was, you know, gangbuster. Like, everything was... People were selling out shows before they even hit the gallery. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. You know, like, oh, this is how it is. And then you realize it's not, you know. Yeah. But I do... I I had a lot of good mentors and teachers who had been around the block about three or four decades, you know. And you could tell you that, like, everything's cyclical and you know, don't get to, you know, just keeping yeah. you in check, I guess. Yeah. That might be the value of a voice of someone who's been through, you yeah, know, the totally. cycle of it. Cause it is cyclical, you know, yeah. kind of like ebbs and flows and, it does. you know, you just kind of have to hang on tight and just keep going yeah, to keep making your work. Yeah. to be self-sufficient too. Yeah. If you got that, what year did you get the award? 2006. So it was past all that. But then when I like first started showing, Outside of SF, that's when, like, the recession hit. So I went through that. Oh, John. I didn't know he was trapped in there. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I I went through, you know, watching things dry up in 2009. And then I started working with Honor... I always say Fraser. It's Honor Fraser in, in L.A. in 2011. And that... 
that was really a good new landing for me. I felt like that's when it started to recover a little. Yeah. Yeah. Fraser. Yeah. Fraser, I think. I've always said Honor Fraser. I love Honor. She's like my favorite person in the world, and I can't, can't. I I learned Fraser, and I always say it wrong. It's really sad. If she, like if she was selling my paintings and saying the wrong name, <laughs> I have to correct Sarah her. Kate. Yeah, exactly. Let's check out this new Sarah Kate painting. But she has such a great <laughs> accent. I'd be like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but so when since you moved to the West Coast, you've kind of stayed on the West Coast, right? Yeah, yeah, it's my home. I How mean, is I, that? Like I always feel when I, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and when I go out west, there's something nice about it. But after a while, I feel like this isn't. You have to do it right. Like, if you could go to L.A. and have the worst experience of your life, or, like, you could visit my studio in my house, and it's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I have, like, a huge garden, and you go up 50 big steps, and it's a, like, um, it's a 700-square-foot garage that's been converted with a balcony that looks onto mountains and skylights and, like, huge Jeez. cactuses, Sounds fruit nice. trees. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, and I don't have to drive too much, which is good. Yeah, but if I had to drive to the west side, whenever I have to do that, I hate the city so much. But I drive maybe maximum. I never drive more than thirty minutes, but usually I drive like fifteen minutes to a friend's house and then back. Right. Surface streets, it's the way. That's doable. Yeah, you know how it is. Uh, like in New York, you get so used to just hopping around, and it's so that's, easy to walk. Yeah, and if you like seeing people, I think that's the hardest transition. Although, like New York is just killing LA because they're the rents have raised so much in the past five years because everyone's moving there um but I think the problem people run into the most is that they're used to those like you run into your friend you talk you go out like you have to drive everywhere or take a car and and unless you force yourself you're not going to see people so people get really weird and isolated there yeah but I like that that's like my safe space right so works no i mean there's something really nice about not having to deal with people after being here you know what i mean the idea yeah. of just showing up somewhere and not having to migrate through a million people to get there yeah which can get it's old intense. yeah but it's it's just a different i guess it's a different pace you know for me it's the pace is yeah. a little different like it's hard out there too especially for i mean it's so stupid but business wise like I just did a show in London and even just like finding a fucking time where you can call them. Yeah. It's so difficult. Yeah. It's all, I mean, it's okay to work with New York, but today I was able to do more text messages than I've been able to do because I just can't wake up early enough. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't think you don't think about that much, but it slows stuff down. Yeah. I have a lot of, I have family in Japan and I work, I show there a bunch and, um, communicating is real. I mean, it's flipped. Yeah. You know, and a lot of times I'll have an impetus to text my, to text my cousin and it's, you know, noon here and it's midnight there and I'm like, oh, yeah. I can't. And then you forget because by the time it's a, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a whole different kind of like way of communicating. Well, yeah, I, thought, I also have, you know, a lot of students who are interested in going to school out in L.A. or on the it's West Coast. It's a great place. And I tell them I don't know too much about it because I think you, you kind of have to go through it to really know it you know there's so many galleries there now though it's like i can't even keep up but i have some friends that are more recently out of grad school and like they know everything that's going on but um 
it's there's so many great people out there right now but I do think kind of going to school there is the key like I didn't obviously go to school there but I moved there for before that the made in LA it was a California biennial and it 2008 I I did that show and there was 85 of my peers so I met everybody in one go which is really helpful but it's super clicky like you have you know UCLA USC all the other ones and they sort of like stick to their groups but right well it makes sense a little bit too with the geography of it like you were saying you go somewhere and you meet people Mm-hmm. not meeting along the way. Exactly. And I remember like when I had a show in LA and there was an opening, there were a couple people who contacted me. They're like, I wanted to come, but there were these two other openings. And I'm thinking if you go to openings in New York, yeah. you can catch like 40 in a night. Yeah. But there, I think it's, it's more difficult because you have to drive far yeah, to get to, to each place. It. So there's this like kind of, I don't know if it's a myth or, you know, the idea that you have to sort of make these connections through school and that kind of builds you the network of, the dialogue of people you'll be talking to afterwards. I'm sure you don't have to do it. You don't have to, but it just makes it easy. It makes it a lot easier. And also, I mean, I, sometimes I wonder if, because grad school's so annoying and the competition of getting in, maybe there's like, I mean, like you see it with Yale and Columbia too. Like there's a, I got in or even Skowhegan. So therefore like you all have to fucking talk to each other the rest of your life and be proud that you got in. Oh, am I supposed to do that? (laughs) No, but I feel that Am I sometimes. Supposed to talk to the Yale graduates today. I feel like sometimes there's this like badge of honor that you made it in. I don't know. I don't. I feel no, like I've you tell me. I've dodged the Yale bullet because I feel like of my graduating class, there's only a few people still here doing it. You know, huh. I think people have gone on to teach or what. I think Skowhegan created more of a network for me than graduate school did. Yeah, like I keep in touch with more people through Skowhegan. But I think that's just, there's a lot of those people are here and doing yeah. it, you know, are sticking to it. Did maybe. you do it after grad school? Did I did it right after grad. I, yeah, I just too. did one compressed, all the people telling me, take, take time off, you know. <laughs> and then I had a couple of professors who would say, you know, just apply to grad school, see what happens. And then I figured I wouldn't get in anywhere and I would take a break, but I got in. So I figured, well, I'll just go, you know. But I ended up doing that. And then there was the whole thing, like, if you apply to Skowhegan when you're in school, you get That's a scholarship. I, yeah, I got it paid for, too. Yeah, so I'm, of course I'm going to do that. Of course you're going to do that. But I had, yeah. like, the best summer at Skowhegan. I mean, Tom Friedman, John Waters. Hegan? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> and my school was, like, a giant residency. It was so hands-off. Oh, we had the flip experience. Yeah. But anyway. Was it good or bad, Skowhegan? This is off the record. No one's listening. Um, I just did a really open... <laughs> candid interview about it for them which I probably was too candid but part it was really hard for me I don't like like I'm not a party social person and I had my first gallery show and the SF MoMA show happened were happening right after so I really had to make work um and I wasn't into communal so I like fought really hard to have the one totally private studio and oh yeah a heat wave happened and the bird's nest erupted with mites. So like my, I had like oh. thousands of bugs crawling over everything and my body. Oh, and I had like, I'm not going to sleep with a fucking roommate. I've been <laughs> on my own since I was 15. So I brought a tent and I lived up in the upper. Really? Yeah. That's like I had a really <laughs> weird experience. Um, 
It yeah. sounds like Skowhegan might not the program, but maybe the place wasn't for you. <laughs> if I was like alone there, it would have been great. But um, but I did like Zatel and George Herms I'm, were my faculty that I was really close with. And mm-hmm. Lisa Siegel was there and Byron was there with her. Um, yeah. But I'm really still close with Andrea and George and um, Gretchen Scher and Donna Wonka were friends and I'm still friends with. So there's there's a couple people, but... Yeah, just, I don't know. Did you avoid duckage? Yeah, I didn't go in that. No you, way. See? We, same thing. Yeah. Everyone was teasing me because I wouldn't go in the lake. Fuck that. I was like, I'm not getting in there. No, I grew up gro- sleep or not sleeping, swimming in creeks. Like, I'm way too, I know about leeches. Yeah. I'm not getting near that. I didn't know. I just didn't look right, you know? And they yeah. were all made fun of me. And then a week later, they all had these covered in <laughs> duckage, whatever that so was. Gross. Like these red marks. And it's disgusting. Yeah, it's kind of gross. Yeah. Did you have a good experience? Well, it sounds like you met some good artists like some it was okay it was really hard i like i'm i'm more socialized as a human now like i think i could go and be faculty and be great but as a student it was really like the shared housing and the the food was terrible and i'm really healthy so i'm not gonna eat from cisco with 70 people so i would always drive (laughs) off town and go find healthy food um but whatever you know. I think at that stage of my life, I was eating whatever. Like, I didn't... I was I vegetarian, was so I think that limited me to, like, granola. And I was just eating granola oh every God, day. it's so bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> I was... It was different times. Yeah. <laughs> much more healthy It is an amazing days. place, though, but my yeah. personality wasn't right for it at the time. I hear you. Yeah. No, but it's... It's an experience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So after... That was the last thing you did, right? The last... 2006, edu- yeah. yeah. And, but yeah. you had a show at SF MoMA. 2000. Well, I came out September 2006. So that was the summer. September I did it for my sh- first show with um, Tony Meyer in San Francisco. And then the Sika, I think, was January 2007. So it was like, usually it takes me a year to make a show. Yeah. Um, so my yeah. brother worked at SF MoMA as design curator there. Oh, really? And I think he was there at that time. What's his name? Darren Alfred. I don't think I met him. Yeah, but that's, was that a good experience, showing at the museum? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I've had much better. Yeah. That's like, I mean, that's like a dumb competition, and everyone says, oh, you got the Sika curse, you're not going to make it if you get that. But, I mean, that was my first, I did that, and then I did a group show at the Aspen Art Museum in 2006, and those were my first, like, museum. Mm-hmm. I've had much better since. There's but. a Sika curse? Yeah, that's, that's what they so would funny. Say. It's not like the Sports Illustrated out cover issue. Like if you're on that or on Madden, you're gonna have a terrible season. It's, it's like just a bitter people. Yeah, yeah, but it was fine. Honestly, it's so long ago that it's hard for me to remember. But um, I was just emailing today with the curator from that, who's now in Australia, my friend Tara. Mm-hmm. Which is haven't heard from her in forever. It was nice to hear from her. Nice. Yeah. Side question: mm-hmm. Are you a fan of music? In this, yeah, I know. I listened to your Chris Martin. I was like, oh god, he's gonna ask me about music. He's gonna be stressed out. No, we can <laughs> we can skip it. Yeah, music is super important in my life. Yeah, like immensely. I can't really paint without it, except for when I'm in the country. Oh, that's cool. You paint with Sometimes, the music on. Yeah, but the country, I'm like, it's too much. Like I should just listen to the spring peepers and stuff. Yeah. Um, I listen to tons of hip hop. I'm nice. not an expert. 
We were just in Saratoga when Kendrick was playing. I was like kind of punching myself that I wasn't going to go, but I hate crowds, so. Yeah, I can't do. I can't do it. Shows are tough. Yeah. Small clubs I can do, I think. Yeah, or backstage, but. My, yeah. <laughs> I didn't get invited backstage. Oh, no, you didn't have. <laughs> That's true. Backstage is nice. My son's really getting into like bigger music, you know. Oh yeah. Like venues. he wants to go see Panic at the Disco, and I'm imagining going to Madison Square Garden. It's oh, gonna boy. be. It's a lot. Yeah, I could not. It's like every fear of mine. Like, yeah, I'm like, you don't want to go like the Blue Note and just sit downstairs yeah. and have dinner and watch some guys play vibraphone, <laughs> which I'm sure you'd love. Yeah, it's a, it's. A so, you listen to music mm-hmm. in yeah, the studio. I have to. Yeah, it's like the only way to get through. I don't do drugs, so I feel like it's the drug. That's me and caffeine. Caffeine and music are my... I drink tons of green tea throughout the day. Highly, highly caffeinated. Yeah. And dark chocolate. I feel like green tea isn't that caffeinated. They always say it's... It actually is more... Like, I get so jacked on it, I'm just buzzing. Really? Yeah. Yeah, black. Like, I just had this black iced tea. Black does a weird thing where it crashes me, but if I do, like, Sencha, get my John Sencha... Yeah. Sencha just is like, whew. It's good stuff, though. It's really good. Yeah, I even, like, converted my boyfriend, who was, like, spokesperson for coffee, and now he's just doing it, which I think is a testament to the caffeine. Like, off coffee and on tea? He's been off coffee, like, a year and only on tea. But if tea's just as caffeinated. I know, but it's a different... (laughs) It doesn't quite make you as crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I drink coffee so much, and I'm so tired all the time now that yeah, I feel like it just fires. it just keeps me at status quo huh. it's like if I don't have the coffee I really feel sluggish <laughs> but I never feel like you know if you like antsy. this is TMI but when I have my period I go off of the tea for two days mm-hmm. holy shit does your body go into like worse like migraines like, oh yeah it's terrible a lot of my girlfriends go off of it when they're pregnant and like they still don't drink it I don't know how they do it well I think you're probably I mean you go through so well. I didn't. My wife went through so much bodily changes and like headaches and nausea and all that stuff that it, you probably don't notice as much as if oh. you're having a normal week and you give up coffee for a week and you just start getting headaches. Oh, I think there's so many other changes that it's like it's just a whole. But when you're through it, don't you want it again? Yeah, my wife. They still don't. I mean, like post-pregnancy, five years later, they're still not drinking coffee or tea. It's well, like amazing. My wife, whenever she was pregnant. The smell of coffee would make her nauseous, and oh, she really? is a huge coffee fan. But I don't, as soon as she was done, she went right back onto coffee. Oh, that's and interesting. Loves it. The smell. How many I'd kids do you have? Fourteen. No, I have one. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Whenever she was pregnant, does she have other babies?" Oh no! Whenever she was pregnant, that time. <laughs> okay. That one time. I pictured all these times. No, no, just no. <laughs> no way. Yeah. One and done. <laughs> I can't imagine. (laughs) I can't imagine having more than one. I mean, he keeps us plenty busy. Yeah, knock on wood. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, coffee. I feel like is my one thing. You know, I don't have any other. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't do anything. I feel like I can have one thing. Yeah, you can have one vice. It's fine. But if I ever do get like a stomach bug, or I'm not feeling good, like sick, I stop coffee because I don't think that's good for. And and I get the headaches are tremendous. It's wild. Yeah, it's a drug. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your art for a little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go near stomach viruses or I'll leave. <laughs> yeah, right. Not knock on wood. Hopefully we're past that, yeah. that time. So 
did you always, you were saying that the stuff you were doing in school was, you were using like letters and the sort of like, but it was always in the abstract language? Pretty much. I mean, as like, as the artist that I am today, um, I just had to dig through like real kid art and I found this amazing, like I, I drew a lot of cats and stuff, but mm -hmm. from like art school on, yeah, abstraction's been my thing. A lot of it though is like abstraction that translates things. Yeah. So whether that, I don't, you know, that's not purely abstract, but. Well, there's a, it seems like you're drawn to a physicality and a scale and reacting to your environment as well. Yeah. However, though, I also, like, my scale is huge. I do this series of talisman that are on dollar bills, so they're, like, that, that size. That's scale, too. Yeah. It's just scale is considered, it never seems to be, like, a four-foot by five-foot painting, painting each time over, you know, a long stretch. It seems like you're always shifting. Your work is, like, reacting to space or... It is, but like that's a, a painting of mine, and that is a consistent size. Like within the canvases, I have four sizes that I tend to stick to. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, it is always about space, and uh, we don't have to talk about that one. I just were these the closeted paintings that you were doing in school that you weren't showing people? I was would never do a canvas that like official of a size that could hang in a house. I was so against it. It took me years to be able to work into that. Um, no, they were really tiny. Oh like yeah. The, you buy at Michael's or something, oh, those craft like things. The Bobo ones? That you <laughs> what are the Bobo ones? <laughs> just the cheapy, like, yeah, thin. Yeah, super cheap. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I'm not going to spend money. I love money. those. <laughs> yeah, they're really, there's a charm to them. And then they had they had objects hanging from them. I've been thinking a lot about objecthood in my work. It's something I get asked about in every interview, and I just don't have the answer. So I've been trying to think, I was trying to think about that today. Walking. You mean why you add physical things to the paintings? Yeah, and what it means. Um, and I've always done it. Like even with the early works on site, I would like find a, t a silk blouse in the squat and hang it on the wall and then paint over it and like what that means and, and how it's shifted. Like in the beginning, I, I, I did have this sort of like quasi spiritual relationship to the objects and I don't know. I, there is, they're still really considered, but I'm less new agey. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I was painting in Mill Valley too, so a lot of times I think the location and the environment in California as an environment was really interesting to me 15 years ago. Did it shift your color, or was your color always kind of vibrant? I think it's pretty vi vibrant. Um, all and I just so I had to dig through to find kid drawings for this thing and this fundraiser, and I found this drawing from second grade. It's a still life which I remember painting. It's a pumpkin and like an apple and shit like that. But the corn, it must have been Indian corn. It's mm -hmm. so crazy. It's all those colors. like in On the cob? No, no, of that crazy painting there. It's like hot pink, turquoise. Like But the corn. Like the, yeah, the yeah, cob the, corn. the corn. Is like Each kernel is oh, a, a yeah. psycho rainbow. Nice. And I was like, oh, I guess that's always been my palette. Isn't that kind of play too, in a way? Like color facilitates play in the painting. Your paintings always seem very... Playful. Playful. People or always say exploratory. that. Yeah, they're exploratory. I also think, like, flying in here this trip, I was trying to explain, like, what the color does to me, and there's a saturation of color in the landscape here that probably affects, like, the saturation of color that I'm really drawn to, mm -hmm. and that's probably just, you know, how I grew up looking. Do you feel like, because you're in a position where you've been showing your work for a while and you have a lot of people who are interested in your work that you need to come up with some sort of explanation for it? 
Or is it kind of nice in a way to not really define why you, let's say like, yeah. oh, Sarah, why are you drawn to materials and using them in your painting? I don't know. I'm drawn to materiality, you know? I used to always be against words, like very against words. And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm a painter. That was, that's my language. However, I realized that idiots that couldn't paint so well but could talk really well, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to deal with looking at their museum shows, and it started to piss me off. So I was like, I have to figure out how to articulate. So before, I would have said no to doing a podcast or an interview. Mm-hmm. But now it's like it's a new challenge to me to try to figure it out. But I don't, I don't know. But then I like sometimes you'll say something, and that's the soundbite that you're stuck with the rest of your life because everybody recycles it. Like there's one thing about my colors about an early childhood memory of balloons landing. It's mm-hmm. like how many fucking times do I have to read that? And I, you know, I just said it offhandedly. Right. And that's frustrating to me. Well, that's why this is good because you just keep flood the zone, just keep saying shit. <laughs> yeah. And like then it's not the one soundbite. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But also the question about like not answering, after you get asked the same question like 20 times, yeah. it's just like, oh my God, just answer it. Just say something. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I think that the genius of Warhol, you know, is he was able to manipulate people into like he got the conversation going about the work, but he was never really had to commit to one specific statement about what he was trying to do. Yeah. Although I think it comes across clearly when you look at his work in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, that's just like a whole, his work and language is a whole different thing. Yeah. No, but I just mean the phenomenon of like explaining your work. Yeah. You know. But isn't, I, I think, I would hope that that's a nice thing about a longer form conversation is that an artist gets the a chance to not just answer the five normal questions that yeah. you read in an article. Yeah, it just depends on the artist, though. Like, it takes me so long sometimes. Like, it, the object thing I, I was walking here thinking about, and I'm like, God damn, every, every time someone asks me that, I have to stop. Like, why don't I just figure it out? So then I was thinking maybe I should do a whole show about that because sometimes I learn by... I do learn by doing... But a lot of the times, like with the works on site, because I don't plan them and I just attack them on the space, I don't even really have the chance to look at it until two years later. Mm-hmm. My, it's so physical and emotional that my brain can't separate from that. That's also like Skowhegan. Like I probably can't yeah. separate because I had a, like a lot like a relationship there that was so emotional. Right. Like I can't detach. And I and the words that I like are words that go into abstraction. I just did this thing for T Magazine where you had you were asked to redesign a cover of a book for summer reading and the book I picked was um, Aqua Viva, uh, Clarice Lispector. And it's like, it's just a, it's such an amazing text, but it it's like pure ful- philosophical thoughts that also like disintegrate into weird poetry. And that, that writing makes sense to my brain. Yeah. But it's that's writing like you can't really have a long form conversation talking like that, or I can't. No, but in a way, your art is that conversation, isn't it? Yeah. No, I agree totally. I think it's the grass is always greener too, because I, I, you know, I, up until Skowhegan, I was an abstract painter, like I made abstract paintings, and then I started painting representationally. I feel like in my work, the the content, the underlying content of it, is so serious. Yeah. Like the last show I hit here was all about the environment and how the world is like basically going to shit. Yeah. And 
but I feel like explaining it, or I feel like there's a lightness to it hmm. that it doesn't need to be defined, or, or I'm not worried about people misinterpreting it too much. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's almost yeah, like... Yeah, I'm not either. You can't. Yeah, and I feel like with abstraction, sometimes, like, or at least in my experience, I would want to explain more. I would get more frustrated if people don't understand what is triggering me to make this work oh. because of the abstract element of it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. almost like the more I honed in on what I was painting, the more I wanted it to be open to the viewer or explanation mm. or interpretation. Because oh. that's kind of what the beauty of art is that it's not defined by word, really. Right. And it sounds like in literature, in the literature you were talking about, it was open and that's what you really yeah, then that's, about I can enter it because of that. But my painting, I've always approached as approaching the unknown, or like, like if I, as soon as I understand what I'm doing, I'm no longer interested in it. So there's that sort of lag time thing too. Like as soon as I get it, then I move to something I don't know. So if I'm always working towards things I don't know, it's hard to then flip and put it into words. But isn't that the words? Like I'm working to unknow the process of what I'm doing. Yeah, but then it sort of ended the conversation. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's not a long form conversation. Yeah, but then they could. Yeah, that's true. Then they could just turn and look at your. Yeah. So what about the red you used in the corner? Exactly. <laughs> Which is always like I used to get go oh. crazy in critiques when they yeah. would just talk about like you know. One color. Oh, you you see the tape there? How it folds? Why did you do? Or, and then when it gets really, when they really give up, they're like, "It looks like your stretcher is a little warped in the corner." <laughs> Is you that know. intentional? Yeah, it turns into that. Totally. Used clear thumbtacks to hang this drawing instead of red thumbtacks. What's that about? You know. Oh, God. <laughs> Critiques. Yeah. Well, fortunately, once you get out of school, you don't really have to yeah. do that anymore. I try to do studio visits with people, but I never do critiques. I've been doing, I, I like go into grad students and do critiques, but I don't like to do that type of critique. It's no. not helpful. I, I try I, to be supportive. Exactly. Like I feel like my job as a teacher at the end of the day, when I leave the studio, they should want to make work. Right. Like I've had those critiques where you want to kill yourself. You, oh yeah. Like visiting <laughs> artists come through and they just try to destroy you. You know, I don't know what it is. They're like, you know it's what your, I mean? Your competition. They just, just come in and try to like blow up the place. You know, yeah. I don't teach here. I'm just going to destroy everyone. Oh they come God. through and everyone's crying and <laughs> wants to stop making work. Like, is that really what art is about? That's how your parents were to you. It's terrible. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Now you're taking it out on <laughs> BFA students across the country. It's so mean. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your, um, what's your working process like now? Are you doing more studio work and less site-specific stuff, or are you still you kind of leave it open? I do a lot of both. Um, the first for the first time, I planned a site work for the Armory platform section this year. Mm-hmm which that was such a strange breakthrough. It was one of those things where you're like, you're such an idiot. Why didn't you plan this 20 years ago? But there is like, usually I just go and attack and resolve and, and I like, I send them a material list, but it's random. And then I make something with it. So that's a huge shift for me. And I'm also making my first public art commission, which is a 10 foot by 148 foot stained glass wall at SFO. And that I'm working with masters. So it's the first time I've had to, draw something, plan it, communicate, and work weekly with some somebody, a team of people making it. Um, so that's sort of my like new, the thing I'm figuring out. But I always make um, 
I'm always making objects. It goes between making works on paper and making canvases in the studio and then works on site outside. Usually my shows have um, a work on site. I like I like to see them together. It and feels it, like complete, right? Yeah, it just, like I can appreciate the paintings for themselves and I think they are legit good paintings, but the works on site because they are physically interacting with your body, it makes the viewer like enter it in a different way. And then you're opened up by the work on site. You can turn around and look at the painting and be, it's activated already. Yeah. Um, it makes the painting exist more present tense. Um, Doesn't it feel weird to show them with, or feel a little empty in a way to show them without like something site specific? Mm, it works, but it's different, right? It's different. I mean, it feels different, but like, I'll see a painting on its own or in a group show somewhere and it's still Yeah, it works. Great. Yeah. It's just a little... Like, I do animation, too. It's a big mm-hmm. part of my work and I love showing them with the paintings because yeah. I feel like you see the paintings a little different after seeing the moving paintings. Yeah. And I can show them without. It's fine. But I do like them together because it's a different kind of dialogue that yeah, the viewer Yeah, it opens has. it up. I mean, I, I definitely feel you on that but I'm personally like trying not to be caught in the hole where people are like expecting that I do one at every show yes yeah. I I this like in the past year I just I did the entryway of ICALA I, I have currently still have one up at the Aspen Art Museum on top of a mountain and I did one at Tim Taylor in London and I did a tiny one at, at SF at a, Tony Myers so like that's a lot of fucking traveling plus I'm doing the stained glass and I'm doing a 2,000 square foot mosaic floor in Miami and it's going to be on the wall too so I'm working with a tile place in Guadalajara that's a lot to manage outside in the world on top of like a two gallery shows object so I'm just trying to figure out like like my dream would be to do one work on site a year mm-hmm. not four Yeah, and I'm going to get there do you feel like at all that well, I got to do, like, these are opportunities, so I should take it now, you know, take it, because you don't want to pass up on things, because, you know, in 20 years, will people be asking for four pieces every year, you know? I think it's important to say no, though, too, or to, like, like, I did, to accommodate London, I shifted a bunch of shows this year to next year, or 2020, Mm -hmm. and, like, I think it's okay to do that. Um, I guess it depends on, like, where where you're at, and... It's a lot, it's a lot, but I I don't fear if I don't do it now, it's not going to be there in ten years. But oh no, not a fear, just of feeling like oh these are cool opportunities, not in a negative way, but kind of like oh these are cool opportunities. I should probably just do it. Like I don't know if yeah, I'll- but is it going to make like I got to this point where I mean I'm fine, but I had this like minor health scare last year, and I was like fuck, am I doing this to myself? Like, yeah, you're I running need- yourself ragged. So, yeah. yeah, so I'm really trying not to do that. Um, you seem so prolific. I think that might, yeah. and that's totally based on zero. No, I am. I make <laughs> so much work. I mean, you just, you have the kind of work, it seems like you're just it's like a making idea. a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Like, which is, isn't that a good? It is a good thing. I think it's I, a testament to the work that it seems like you're just grinding all the time and just exploring and yeah, and just making all this stuff in a really interesting, like it's not like, you know, a photorealistic painting or a minimalist painting or something. To, it just feels like you're just playing and like, yeah. Searching around through materials and ideas, and yeah, I, so that's probably when you feel best, right? Yeah, I need it. I mean, I 
I really need it. I don't feel right if I'm not doing that. Um, that's the other thing I'm trying to figure out with the larger commissions where I'm working with a team of 22 people. Oh, and, and like I have to talk to construction workers. Like I, I actually the other day started talking sports just because I was like, fuck, they are not getting me what I need. Right. So I just like started ta- trying to talk sports. And he was like, he literally said, I like you better already. Of course. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you got so stupid. It is. Yeah, but you got to connect with people, right? You gotta yeah, right. But like, I don't know how to do that. And I come off as aloof and snotty a lot. So I've been trying to like learn some personality traits. That yeah, I'm just go to the lowest in. common denominator, sports. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there with hunting next. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, NASCAR. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, you going to the race? We, we just stayed right by. Uh, Watkins Glen? In New Lebanon Speedway. Oh, where's that? It's it's in East Na- it's it's by East Nassau. Anyway, we just drove by it and I was I told my boyfriend, I was like, This is where my seventeen year old boyfriend would score heroin. Oh in my the parking lot. <laughs> what a bad <laughs> memory that I had forgotten. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. No, no NASCAR. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my son got really into the car racing and I took him. Oh really? Yeah, Great. we went to uh I thought that's what I thought, you know. We went to um the one in Pennsylvania, the Poconos. And what I was, was prepared for what I thought was just going to be bedlam, you know. Yeah. Like, Don't go to New Lebanon. I won't. <laughs> but it wasn't bad, actually. The funny thing about the race is the cars are so loud that you can't, no one talks. Oh, it's like this meditative, everyone has these uh, earplug things that broadcast the race. Oh, wow. So there's all these, you know, NASCAR people. Yeah. But they just sit there and quietly, like, watch. It's kind oh, of, it was kind like of a drive-in movie. poetic. In a way. Huh. Yeah. I didn't linger for the after party or the, <laughs> the parking lot. <laughs> I think we trade. left a little early. So, yeah, it wasn't bad. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> the things you do for the yeah. kids. <laughs> no, it was a good experience. Oh. So, what do you, so you have the show up now in London, correct? It just came down. Oh, it just came down. Yeah, I did that in the show at Victoria Miro, which was a hundred years of women in abstraction. And that was kind of mind blowing. Whoa. Yeah, I got to Sounds like a big show. It was. There were 50-something women, um, and I did a walkthrough. They have two spaces, so I did it through the one that had the more historic and did a little talk on Jada Feo, Kusama, Betty Parsons, um, a whole bunch of other people I'm forgetting. That must have been a nice experience. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah, and that... I didn't even, it was sort of happen unplanned, but I got there the night of that opening. So to land and like see that was really cool. And then to go do a work on site and that show at Tim's was good. And now I'm home for a minute. Yeah. So thanks for taking, I know you've yeah, been really super nice busy. You, it was great to meet you too. And thanks yeah. for, for taking time out of your schedule to come talk to me. Thank today. you. I look forward to seeing your work too. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sound and Vision is recorded and edited and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can check out behind-the-scenes images and more at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can support the podcast by leaving a review and a rating on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. And also, you can grab a Sound and Vision tote bag at the website, and we have an upcoming t-shirt collaboration with Dream Street. So stay tuned for that. 
Big thanks to all the artists and musicians, music by Nazca Lines and Lullatone. And you can check out my work at paintchanger.com. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>